Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. We have to give kids the dignity of exposure and learning that something is safe, that it's not going to hurt them, and that it might taste good and that their body might feel good when they eat it. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have Jennifer Anderson, who is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and mom of two exciting boys with an engineer husband and cheerleader for so, so, so many hundreds of thousands of parents. I don't know. Can we say it like that? For all the parents, for every parent, for you listening, for feeding your child. She has a master's of science in public health and in international health and human nutrition from John Hopkins Public School of Health. When she was in her master's, she was part of a research team looking at inner city corner stores and carry out restaurants where that kind of inspired her. I think it inspired her work now, but we'll let her tell her story. So Jennifer is also the owner of kidseatingcolor.com, which the tagline there is really getting your kids to eat fruits and veggies. And so I feel like everyone is on the edge of their seat listening, right? We know this isn't a really simple thing, but we're going to try to pick Jennifer's brain today. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Yeah. Tell us how you arrived at where you are today with the, where did kids eat in color come from? And where did the original, was this something that you kind of got into from your own experience first, or do you feel like you were dealing with it in practice and then you realized as a parent that it was all connected? Tell us about the origin story. Sure. So Kids Eating Color really came from me struggling to feed my own child. My son started to fall off the growth chart when he was very young and of course caused a ton of stress. And I thought, wait, I'm a dietitian. I thought feeding kids was really straightforward. Big laugh because, you know, that's what we all say when we, before we have kids, oh, it's going to be so easy. Well, no, it's not. So I started Kids Eat in Color as an Instagram feed to help other parents because I thought, you know, I can't be the only mom having a hard time feeding my three-year-old who's not that interested in eating. So I started posting little pictures of his lunches and things that I was doing within the context of his lunches to help him eat better. And next thing I knew, I was not alone. <laughs> I was not the only parent struggling with this. And now it's a really big thing. Right. Now it is a big thing. So was there a time where, what were you doing before? And then did you transition 
how do you mostly help parents with this? Like what kind of things do you offer to help them? And then we'll get into all those specific questions. Sure. So I provide a ton of free resources on social media and the blog and that sort of thing. And then I also provide a really easy exposure-based meal plan for busy families. And then I have a program for the families who are struggling with their kids who have picky eaters. That's called Better Bites. And that's where we really get into the nitty gritty of like how to do things day to day to help our kids expand as they're ready. Cool. Awesome. All right. So again, we talked about how this kind of affects everyone. So I'm going to jump right into audience questions. And we have a different RDs listening and we have savvy parents, but we're going to start with some some regular savvy parent questions. Let's you talked about exposure just a moment ago, which I feel like is is um a good a good foundational word. But if someone's wondering, how do I get my kids and my husband? I think that's the fun one, right? And my husband right. to eat fruits and vegetables. This is an audience question. I think it's more of a texture and smell issue than a taste thing. So what would you say to this person? Yeah, absolutely. You're probably right. It's a texture and smell thing. So you can experiment different preparation methods, different temperatures, because that affects smell a lot. You can also open a window. If the broccoli is too smelly, open a window, serve it cold, serve it with dip, things like that. And it's the same thing with kids and husbands and moms who are picky. Over and over and over, the more people see things, the less they are offended by the texture, the less they're affected by the smell, and the more they are willing to slowly branch out. This is not a quick fix thing. Right. So on that same note, the family is really skeptical when I try to hide veggies and recipes. So I'll be curious on your opinion on hiding veggies. So I'll tell you a story. So I have a five-year-old. He's very selective and we've worked extremely hard on this for his five years of life. And he's pretty competently. He doesn't like mushrooms and frankly, neither do I. But I had some extra mushrooms and I thought, oh, I want to use these up. I will dice them really finely and put them into this taco mixture. I've done this before and I have a very strict no hiding food policy. So I didn't think of this as hiding. It's just an ingredient in the taco. I often add a vegetable or some sort, except I didn't dice it very finely. And I also didn't say anything about it. He took one bite, got a slimy mushroom in his mouth and looked at me with both disgust and betrayal. Like you, you did this to me. You contaminated my food. And he was extremely hurt and angry in that moment. And I could see that. And I said, oh, yes, there are mushrooms. I'm so sorry. He wouldn't eat it. He didn't eat. In fact, for the next three days, he asked me at every dinner meal, does this have mushrooms in it? Does this have mushrooms in it? Because he needed to then reestablish that trust that I wasn't going to feed him something that was disgusting to him. I mean, if somebody put nails in your lunch, would you want to know about it ahead of time? Well, I think this is bringing up a great point because food is more emotional than anything else so often, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think sometimes we try to glaze over the, especially in our profession, we try to take the emotion out of it and it doesn't necessarily work. So would you say, I mean, what percentage is emotional when you're working through, even when you work through programs, do you feel like you have to spend a lot of time on the emotions around, or is that pretty much completely like it's always woven into everything? It's always woven in there because when your child is sitting down and they are afraid of a new food or they have high anxiety, there is usually an extreme anxiety and fear component to really selective kids. And there's also trust. Do they trust you? Do they trust you to feed them something that they feel comfortable with? Do they trust that they can come to a meal and feel safe enough? And there's a food there that they're familiar with enough that they know they can eat that and fill up and be safe. There's a huge, that 
food is so based around nurturing and connection with the people that we're eating with and trust with that person. That really is the foundation. If we can't address that and we just continue to put kids in, a, in positions where they feel anxious about their food or worried that there's going to be something in there, they never know what's coming, they never have a safe food, they're always being forced, you're never going to make progress. And if you do, it's going to be short-lived progress. Right. You know, this reminds me of some conversation I was telling you off air. I interviewed someone on a very similar, but we talked about very different things yesterday. But one of the things we did talk about is when should parents be concerned? Because we all have this pain point on, we want our kids to eat nutrition. We want them to grow up healthy, right? So we want them to eat certain things. And so we can talk about that. But in general, is there a time where it's kind of maybe you should get some extra help, right? And it's okay to get help at any stage of any problem. But Mm -hmm. what are some red flags where a child might need some extra therapy help? And who's in that toolbox? Because when I've gone to presentations on this, I've been kind of underwhelmed by our typical, and this may be changing, but I I remember going to a presentation by some speech therapists and the feeding therapy was locking the kid in the room and making them eat. And I thought this doesn't seem very beneficial. And so let's talk about what's in the toolbox for sure. But when do people, what are some situations where maybe a parent needs to look for people to add to their care team? Yeah. So the, the red flags that I look for, is your child always dropping off foods from their list that they'll eat and never getting them back? Is your child eating maybe even less than 20 foods, less than 20 to 30 foods? Those are red flags. Is your child, do they have extreme reactions in the face of a food they don't like? I mean, do they throw a complete tantrum? Can they not even have the food in the room for them to be able to function at mealtime? Do you feel like as a parent, things at mealtime are way worse for you than most of the parents that you know? And I realize that these are sometimes subjective, but as parents, your gut telling you like, wait, all my friends, they have a hard time too, but it's nothing like what I experienced. That is actually a good indicator because we know about 25% of children will have eating problems to the point that it's going to cause some sort of issue for them. They're going to have a lack of variety or a lack of volume or something that will affect them physically. That's 25% of kids. So that means if 75% of your friends are, eh, they seem like they're having a hard time, but it's nothing close to you, then you may be part of that 25%. And then there's also some other things like, will your kid ever try a new food or will they never, never, ever try a new food? So those are some things that I look for. And that's what I ask parents before they join my Better Bites program. Now, of course, I have parents who join, who want to get to it proactively. Like they've noticed their child has become more picky and they really want to catch it early But most of the parents come when they're feeling super defeated and frustrated and like mealtime is the worst time of the day for them. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not very fun, right? And that does happen where dinner is an enjoyable time and then it becomes kind of a non-enjoyable time. So let's talk about what family mealtime might look like. Let's say someone's really struggling with family mealtime. What are some suggestions that someone could start tonight or try to start this week to start to set the stage for a more positive family mealtime? So the first thing I recommend is just telling your kid you don't have to eat it and leaving it there. Remove the pressure from the mealtime and embrace the fact that they are a person in charge of their body. It's actually not your job as a parent to decide what your child swallows. And that's very hard for us. It's very hard for us as parents to say, oh, it's not actually my job to decide what my child chooses to swallow. Sure, it's my job to 
to set the whole environment, to decide what goes on that table, to present the options. But when push comes to shove, it's actually your child's job to decide what happens in their body. I think that's a great thing we should dig into a little bit more is let's kind of repeat and reiterate what's the parent's responsibility and what is the child's responsibility because it really breaks down to that. Right. And this is huge. And this really sets the stage for making progress or continuing to battle for all time. And the parent's job is to decide the environment, what food is served, what food is coming into the house and where that food is served. Like, where is your child eating? That's your job to decide and set the boundaries on where your child can eat and when they're going to be eating. So having a consistent meals provided to your child, not letting them kind of like eat a bite every hour throughout the day. And then it's your child's job to choose to choose whether to eat and how much to eat. That's actually not your job. It's not your job to force your child to eat broccoli. It's your job to put the broccoli on the table and let your child choose whether to eat it and how much of it to eat. So what happens when we get into that? Because I think so often we don't realize how we become our parents until we're kind of standing in the middle of it saying things that sound just like our parents, right? (laughs) I have those moments frequently. I think, oh, I said I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I know, especially if I'm around them or I'm around siblings and I think Mm -hmm. we're so different, but we all, we unfortunately picked up these traits. What happens when you create the environment where you need to sit at the table and finish what's on your plate? What's the ramifications that you commonly see? Yeah. So I would say of all the things that are commonly pulled down from previous generations, the idea of finishing your plate is one that probably has the most long-lasting health implications in a negative way. And that is completely um, breaking the connection between your ability to listen to what your body needs and then respond to what your body needs. So when we incentivize kids to finish their plate, we say it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you're full. It doesn't matter. Any of that doesn't matter. You just have to finish your plate. That's the most important thing. And so then you see adults who are finishing an enormous piece of cake, not because they like it, not because they want to, but because they have to finish their plate. Adults who go out to a restaurant and get a double-sized portion of food And they finish it not because they want to, not because it feels good, but because they feel like they have to finish their plate. And that is the thing. We really want to preserve kids' ability to stop when they're full and eat when they're hungry. Those things serve us well our entire life. And so allowing a child when to stop and when to eat is key. You know, you just brought up another question, of course, right? That's the point of of a conversation. (laughs) But let's say your child is hungry or we think they're hungry, but dinner's not ready yet. And so it's like we snack ourselves out of being hungry for dinner. And I think that's a common pain point for a lot Mm -hmm. of us as well is you cook and you spend the time on this and then they don't eat any of it. So what are your tips for that? Yeah. So you have to think to yourself, like research shows kids who snack a lot, get less nutrients, they eat less well, they do less well. There is absolutely no evidence out there that it suggests grazing or eating all the time or eating throughout the day is good for your teeth, for your body, for absolutely anything. So we, instead of kind of thinking, oh, you're hungry, let me give you a little something. I'll just keep giving you a little something. Well, by the time we get to dinner time, often they've had a little something eight times and they're no longer hungry for dinner. And it's our job as the parent to help our kids get into a rhythm of eating so that they are hungry for dinner, but not famished. 
nobody wants a hangry child who's so hangry that they're, you know, losing their mind and having tantrum after tantrum. So we have to find that schedule that works for them, that works for us. And sure, if we're all helping in the kitchen and I'm eating carrots because that's what I'm chopping up, that's a totally different thing. A couple carrots before dinner is not going to wreck dinner. And even if it did, sounds like you were already going to serve carrots for dinner. So it doesn't really matter, right? But we're not giving our kids two handfuls of goldfish crackers before dinner to get them to dinner because then by the time they get to dinner, they're not hungry. And we've just really set ourselves up for a lot of frustration because then our kid isn't interested in eating. They don't want to try new things. They don't really want to eat anything because they just had enough goldfish crackers to really take the edge off their hunger. And now they're just not even that interested. Yeah. You know what? When you've talked about this, sometimes I have seen myself or I think to myself, this is how working with kids is you're really working with their parent, right? And so sometimes whether we like it or not, we realize, oh, well, this is my problem and my kid won't do this. And really the only thing we can change is ourselves. And so I think the first thing we can do is stop and be aware. Are things that Jennifer has said ringing a bell for you? If you think about your own childhood, if you think about your adulthood now, if are you snacking the whole time you're making dinner? Mm-hmm right? Are you snacking the whole time you're making dinner? Do you feel like you have to finish your plate at the restaurant because of maybe some like literally things that you didn't realize are imprinted in your brain, right? And so if we haven't assessed that in ourselves, then we can't expect it to be different for our children. And so our own self-awareness is probably the first step no matter what. So I think it's good. Like there might be some good questions we can pull out of this. So what I'm taking away already as an adult is, do I eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full? If I don't, you know, what's going on there? When I go to a restaurant, like, do I feel like I have to finish it? Or is there something going on? And where do I get those feelings? Mm-hmm. And then when I'm preparing supper, when am I hungry? Right? When am I hungry? When am I full? How much do I need a snack in between? What specific annoyances about my children do I have? And do I see those in myself? Yeah. That's the hardest of them all, I think. Right. Like, oh, I'm so mad that they're snacking as you're hiding in the kitchen snacking. Right. I mean, I've done it. You know, I think there's a lot more awareness now of best practices around eating for some families. And we grew up with a lot of practices where, I mean, my parents certainly forced me to eat things that I won't touch. I will not touch to this day. I just cannot. I think we could all think of things that we were horrified by. I remember one time my job was to take some meat out of the freezer to thaw for supper. And who knows what we were going to have, but I accidentally got liver out. And so that's what we had to have that night. And I remember, I'm pretty sure I had to sit at my... I mean, I'm like very vaguely remember that. I feel like I was supposed to sit and eat this liver, but it's very well imprinted in my brain now that right. I don't, I don't right. want to do that. And let's take this another step further. If our topic today is how to get kids to eat fruits and vegetables, how do we start to become interested in fruits and vegetables, right? I think part of it, yeah, is just serving it regularly. So I remember my husband and I got married. We were pretty young and he didn't like beets, but I liked beets. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can get him to eat beets. Now, I was not a dietitian at the time. This was just my own personal project. And I just started serving them regularly and enjoying them myself and putting lots of butter and salt on them. I never assured him in any way. He's a a grown adult, you know. And next thing I know, he loves them because he had always been served vinegared pickled beets, Mm. which I also won't eat growing up and never knew that a beet could taste great with butter and salt. Like a lot of things taste good (laughs) with butter and salt. But I think part of it is okay, let's get it into our repertoire. We don't have to buy a lot of it. If you've never had a parsnip, 
Don't buy 25 parsnips, buy one parsnip or buy the smallest bag they come in so that you're not wasting it. But you can still start to explore things in small quantities. And I actually have a free veggie exposure shopping list that is meant to help people do that, where you can say, oh, I've never thought about cabbage in five years. I want to start adding that in. And there it is on my shopping list. So that's one potential way to kind of start getting that. Because here's the thing. If you your kid never sees something, they will never, ever eat it. They can't. It's not there. They can't learn to like it. And it, it, they have to be able to see it. Right. This is where I think school nutrition, people don't give school nutrition as much credit as it deserves. And I mm. feel a little bit uh, partial to this because when the new food rules came out, I was a contractor with the Department of Education and I visited schools and helped at assessments and I helped them get... And really what it was, is people didn't understand. What happened was... There was for a while some rules that they lifted. They had minimums and, and maximums of the amount of meat and grains that you could have. Then they lifted the maximums, but kept calorie targets, whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. we're not going to get into that. But the thing that came out that was good, I felt, was it required diversity. And so you needed dark mm-hmm. green. You needed a dark serving of dark greens every week or so much dark green. You needed beans every week. You needed so much starch. You needed red orange. And if you didn't have that requirement, a lot of times... School nutrition is basically going to be whatever the person who's in charge likes, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's literally what it is. It's kind of like, what's your kitchen like? You're the person in charge. It's going to be what you like. And so if you don't think, you know, several years ago when I moved to this small town that I live in, it's a food desert and it's sandwiched between, it is definitely the food desert. It's 500 people, two hours from a Walmart. And I Mm. remember as part of a grant project at parent-teacher conferences, we did a like a veggie trial thing. And I was at the red pepper station and so many people, so many adults didn't know that red peppers weren't hot, that they're sweet, Mm. which tells me that there's no exposure, Mm -hmm. right? Which tells me. And so my point is, is that probably thank your schools and and thank them for this. And one thing that came out of that was a lot more salad bars happened. So that way kids could choose and be exposed to a lot more different things. There's also a program in schools called the Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Program. And it's usually given to lower income schools, but in our state where it's not used excessively, any school who really wants to participate in it can. And this doesn't always happen because sometimes the purpose of a grant program gets missed. But one of the purposes of it is to introduce kids to new things, right? So Mm -hmm. like get them hickama sticks or something that's maybe unusual for the upper Midwest where I am. So I think we have to sometimes thank schools for the exposure because if we're not willing to do the exposure, then our kids aren't ever going to see that or understand. Right. And I think a lot of the pushback from the new school rules was, oh, the kids aren't eating it. And I just have to ask people to step back and think about it. If you're growing up in a a low resource setting where your parents don't have the money to try something new or they're afraid to try something new and you've never seen it, who is going to show that to you? And how are you going to learn to like it? Because most people aren't going to even decide if they like it or not without eight to 10 tastes. And it might take 20 seeing it to actually get to tasting it. So of course they're not going to eat broccoli the first time we see it. I coordinated the youth nutrition program at the Northern Illinois Food Bank for a long time. And we got carrot sticks and broccoli, pieces of broccoli into these after-school programs that had, they didn't have a lot of resources, but this was free food. The kids had never seen broccoli. They had literally never seen broccoli in this after-school program. They're school-age kids. They had never seen it. So guess how many people ate it? None. (laughs) Of course, they hadn't eaten it or didn't eat it because they had never even seen it. So 
we have to give kids the dignity of exposure and learning that something is safe, that it's not going to hurt them, and that it might taste good and that their body might feel good when they eat it. Right. I would also tag on often that really needed to speak positively because if you're going to say gross, we had to have this, how much do you think that's going to rub off on people? And that's really the concern. That goes back to one of the first listener questions, which was how do I hide vegetables for my kids and my husband? And I think all we can do is go back to what's our individual responsibilities Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to train a husband. I really don't, you know, oh, they're, yeah. they're, they're just, people. I mean, do you want someone to train you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to train my husband, honestly, but you brought up a good point, which was one I had a listener ask about, you know, how do we go beyond Ellen Satter? So he works with a low income population, which you have a lot of experience with as well. He says that he likes the division of responsibility, which is essentially what we were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. parent and the child each have a different responsibility. And he asks, however, would there be anything to complement that? Because sometimes he sees social determinants of health at play, like poverty, extended family are the only ones raising the child, sometimes care. And this actually tags into another question where someone said, what about when someone else is giving my kids things I don't want them to have, right? Like soda, processed snacks, Cheetos as a comfort measure or a coping mechanism. Um, This can sometimes lead to picky eating, anemia, cavities, early prediabetes. How do we approach this um, overall? And it's a big thing. You know, it's a big thing, but what are, what are your opinions? So here's what I think. And I have done an enormous amount of pondering on kind of the Ellen Satter division of responsibility and what the limitations are to that and maybe what some of the other approaches could be. And there's some things that I just don't see a lot of success long-term and other things that, you know, potentially. So my Better Bites program is, has a foundation of the division of responsibility, For extremely picky kids, they will usually never, ever try a new food. They'll never be able to branch out. And Ellen Satter's model, which is still the foundation of the Better Bites program, does not give parents the tools they need to actually help their extremely picky kids branch out and try something new in a way that is still based on no pressure and trust with the parent. And so my Better Bites program goes beyond that. And then we do advanced methods of like, okay, so once we've established this trust and this comfortable like thing at the meal... Like, how do we go beyond that? And there are strategies. But when we're dealing with extreme poverty and people who don't have food security, I personally don't think that there's a lot that can be done if we're, say, just looking at, I don't know, weight. Or, I mean, the reality is, like, what is the intervention to get grandparents to stop giving their grandkids soda? When they don't want to be watching the grandkids, the only reason they're doing it is because the parent is working and they're in this really bad situation. And soda makes the kids be quiet. And in that sense, the soda becomes a safety for the kids because otherwise the grandparents would be on their case. I think we're dealing with like really, really extremely difficult situations. My mom had a friend who was the grandparent and the local school sent out a BMI report to every family. They weighed the kids at school and then they sent a report home that said, your kid is overweight. Yikes. The mother in that situation was mentally unstable, emotionally abusive, and maybe physically too, I don't know. Just blew into a rage, emotionally abused the child because here's what had been happening. So the mom is disengaged. The dad or boyfriend is, I think it was a boyfriend, disengaged. The way that they got the kids to be quiet so that they wouldn't be emotionally abused is to sit them in front of a TV with potato chips. And this is what they did every day. 
this is how this child was surviving. And of course, her weight reflected that. And when this letter came home, it resulted in this just enormous trauma, right? I think we always have to step back and say, what is really happening here? And Yes, I understand that this child has cavities, but is there anything that can actually be done without doing more harm? And there's absolutely no easy solutions. I was recently talking to a pediatrician in Montana who works with a tribal community. And she said, you know, really need to listen to what the community wants. Because when the community wants something, they can come up with a solution. And then we can just come alongside if if they need something and they're asking for something, we can come alongside that. I think we really need to look at this. Like the family who is giving all these snacks and Cheetos, do they care? Do they care about their child's health? Because it's possible they don't. And if we try to insert ourselves and try to make them care, we're going to make things a lot of worse, like in this little girl's case. So I always want to approach these things. It is not my job to tell anyone that health is the most important thing. Obviously, I have... Health is so important to me and my family. And I am so fortunate to have a job that enables me to buy food for my children and buy vegetables and things like that. Many people don't have that. They don't have that safety. They don't have that job. They maybe don't have that mental stability. And the struggle is real. It's so real. And before we try to insert ourselves into a situation, we really need to listen really hard. Now, if a parent is coming and they are saying, okay, you're telling me my child has anemia, what can I do? Suddenly we have a toolbox, right? Let's find out. How can we help you? What information do you need? How can I assist you? But if they don't care, we may do more harm than good if we try to just force something. I think it's good to bring this up as depressing as it is because you're literally describing most people's average day in conventional nutrition and conventional dietetics, right? Working in clinics. And this is where we find lack of fulfillment. I will sometimes say now that I have the great luxury of working with people that care because in private practice, the only people that are going to search you out are the ones that care. But Mm. in conventional or in a hospital setting or in a school nutrition setting or in a WIC setting or whatever setting that a nutrition professional might be put in because that is where jobs are in our Mm -hmm. field, you might be dealing with people, 90% of them that don't really care yet. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of in, I guess it goes back to stages of change model. And so we have our pre-contemplation stage of change. We're not even thinking about changing because we don't care yet. And Mm -hmm. so I think so often people feel inadequate or that their skills aren't adequate because if someone cared, yes, we've got the tools for them. But if they don't care, it's like, you need to be a therapist, right? right. Almost. <laughs> right. And so it's like, how do you help someone care? Yeah. And I don't know how you help right. someone care besides inspiring mm-hmm. um, and educating. And I really feel like that's all I have in my toolbox is trying to inspire and educate. And honestly, I feel like maybe that's why I love the podcast because everyone can use, we can all get better in any aspect, right? Like everyone's got their certain set point right now. And right. so like every year can be a little bit better. We can improve our set point. And so, but yeah. we do that through education and inspiration because we never are moved to change I mean, there's a couple of ways we're moved to change, desperation and inspiration. It's usually desperation, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's probably all things, if we think about how do we get inspired to and enjoy health or, or care about health, you know, it'd be an interesting question to each ask ourselves. How did we all start to care about it? Yeah, you totally just immediately brought me back to my internship days. Like, oh my gosh, being in the hospital with people who are just like, leave my room, please. But, you know, I think there's another way that people change. And I think it's that people learn to care. And I think it's by telling them what they're doing right. Mm. 
Because right now, especially from health fields, over and over and over, we're told you're not doing enough. You're doing a bad job. I mean, the mm-hmm. list of things you're supposed to do while you're pregnant is not even possible if, let's say, you had a job or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is like eight hours of stuff for me to do per day. And then I also have an eight-hour job and you're telling me you need to sleep extra? Mm-hmm. Like, it just doesn't add up. Especially moms get just dumped on. Like, you're never doing enough. Your child is unhealthy. Your child has this problem. They're not eating enough vegetables. They're not doing this. I guarantee you that you can find something that a mom is doing right in a lot of the cases. And if that is just saying you went out of your way to make dinner for your child, that is a big lift. And that's a really big lift if you have a lot going on in your life, which I feel like that's all parents, right? Mm -hmm. So when you tell someone what they're doing right, then they're going to be more connected to you and they may be more willing to... Listen, when you say, oh, your child has anemia, and you can kind of connect the dots, anemia can lead to, you know, a brain not having what it needs to develop properly. Let's talk about what questions you have about this. Let's talk about what you might be able to do. But if you preface that with like, oh, I can see you really care about your child, or I can see you're really engaged with what your child is eating, or I can see that you're putting a lot of effort. When you can pair those two things together, you're going to have a much different reaction from a parent because you're not really coming as like the expert that knows everything, but you're coming more as a person who's just acknowledging the effort that it takes to try to raise a human and take care of them, which is a lot of work. Now, obviously, if you're dealing with an adult who doesn't care, there might be other things. But I think telling people that they're doing a good job is an underrated strategy. I love it. And so what I wrote down was if you could take away something and I'll give Jennifer the opportunity to plug in anything else, if you could take one thing away. But if we think about that, it could be an answer to a lot of the other questions I have, right? Like advice on fighting against grandparents, eating the stuff, which we kind of touched on, right? But like, I think also we often feel like a victim and this is the answer to victimhood is let's say you're the woman of the house and let's say the responsibility falls on you to be the provider where you're buying and preparing the meals. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening that might resonate with that. And let's say someone just tells you everything you're doing wrong. Isn't it now more about that than anything else? Because I just also had flashbacks and I thought about, you know, unproductive conversations I might have with my husband, which are really, those are just tangents on how we were raised, right? At the end of the day, like I sit back and say, oh, you know, can't give what you don't have. It's just something my mom says, can't give what you don't have. And so what we can do, it sucks because we need our cups filled. So we need to be told what we're doing right, but we can try to be a mirror because we are mirrors and we can try to put that out into the world first. And so I think that's the most beautiful explanation for any of the other comments or questions is like kind of non-judgmentally, non-threatening, opening it up. And I think in a clinical setting, as you're sitting with a client or a patient or whatever, just them being there, the answer is, I can see you really care about your health because you've come here. And so I can see you really care about your child. Even if that's not true, planting it in their brain, maybe they might say, oh, my doctor told me to come. She tends to motivate people quite a bit, but my doctor told me to come. Maybe they don't realize like that actually shows that they cared or that they showed up. Right. Right. And so maybe connecting those dots. Right. Connecting the dot. I can see you really care. This is why you've been asked to come here. Here's what it means. What questions do you have? What do you want to get out of this? Because I can talk about a lot of things. But what do you want to get out of it? 
And so putting it back into that, like, what do you want when you grow up? Right. And painting the, I think that really is like painting vision, right? It's like, what do you want? Mm -hmm. Right. What do you want? All right, cool. Here's how we can get there if you want. So yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like I wish I had a class on that. <laughs> just kidding. It's just a perfect, it's a really a perfect positive sentiment because we were getting a little depressing there for a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it can be really hard. I mean, one of the things that I've learned just through Instagram is when you tell moms they're doing a good job and that they did a great job that they made dinner, then they're like, oh, well, maybe I could add broccoli tomorrow night because you just gave them some space in their life. And feeding kids is hard. It is so hard. It is beyond hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I actually set up a meeting with a pediatric dietitian because I was struggling feeding my kid. And I was like, you know what? I am way too close to this. This is my area of expertise. And I just need somebody else to tell me what I already know because I need another person to validate my efforts and also tell me everything's going to be okay, which is exactly what she did. And I knew that because that's exactly what I would have done. Right. But sometimes we need to hear that from an expert. We need to hear that from another person. We need to hear that you don't have to do it perfectly to do it well. And yeah, your child may not eat vegetables. They may not eat vegetables till high school, but that's actually, they're going to be fine. They don't have to eat vegetables to survive and thrive and do well in life. That's the real kicker. (laughs) Obviously, um, we want them eating vegetables if we can, but... Right. I think you gave some people that moment to exhale when you said that you went to someone to find out what you knew, because I think I feel like I've played that role a lot of times. <laughs> so yeah. so I think um, it's important to say, that's okay. By the way, a lot of people do that. It's okay if you need to be able to talk to someone. And that's sometimes I think we can get discouraged because we're like, oh, I knew that. But that's really... A lot of times the answers are somewhat within you, Right. Right. Sometimes they are. I mean, sometimes we want to learn in the context of a relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're meant to be social and relational people. And when we don't have that, we get really stuck in our heads. And next thing you know, we're fixating on the fact that our child won't eat broccoli. But in the scheme of things, like it doesn't matter if your child eats broccoli. There's a lot of different things they could be eating. And sometimes we just need somebody to kind of kick us out of that and be like, oh, it looks fine. Like, yeah, it's not perfect, but who's perfect? Right. Love it. Jennifer, is there anything that you feel like if someone's listening and they felt like, oh, wow, you were talking exactly to us or to me in this interview that you want to leave them with? And then where can people find you online? Sure. I just want to leave any person listening here with the message that you are doing a great job. And yeah, it's not a perfect job, but it's still a great job. And I will cheerlead you for that. If you do want to find me more, I'm on Instagram, Pinterest, TikTok. I can't dance, but I'm there anyway. The blog, kidseatingcolor.com. If you're interested in something like Better Bites where you do feel like you need more teaching, you want to work on getting your picky eater on the road to eating better, there is Better Bites for that. And uh, you know, if you're busy and overwhelmed, you don't want to think about what to meal plan, there's really easy weekdays. But yeah, I think you're doing great. Yeah, that's a great point because I have some friends that are also in the child eating space and there's a conversation about meal planning. And I think to myself, if, as we talked through this, we talked through, you know, what do you need to have in place so you feel less stressed and so you can give more. And so just having plans in place, you know, anyway, I didn't see how it all fit before. <laughs> and then we talked through it and I see how all the pieces fit. Thanks so much for coming on today, Jennifer. I know that everyone will take something from this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 